welcome, my lords, to the White City, where you will learn more about Middle-earth and discover differences and similarities between the Rings of Power show and Tolkien's books, and whether Amazon's show, episode by episode, is worth watching. I'm Philip Dutt, your host, and I'll be joined by Matt Vandevoort and Mark Schaefer. I hope you enjoy. Things that we've talked a lot about are um, just our themes from you know, the Lord of the Rings books and other books in Middle-earth and compare them to themes in the Rings of Power show. Um, and in most of those instances, those themes are in a big way like from a Christian worldview. Um, but I think then what we want to do is go a little deeper than that and think about how Tolkien's Christian worldview influenced his writings and how he wrote that into his stories. Um, and uh, is there anything you guys have that sticks out um, in a big way about uh, just the worldview in general? Generally, the first one that pops to mind is whenever you think of the Lord of the Rings story specifically, there's usually like um three uh like christ types in the story um i think it's important to note that like when we talk about this uh tolkien didn't write like a one-to-one story right like uh, you don't he's not it's not like uh the narnia is the easiest like example right like there's no single character that's supposed to be jesus like aslan is in that story tolkien um, famously did not like allegory and he did not like it when people said one of the things was an allegory and he didn't like Narnia specifically because it was an allegory. Yeah, yeah. So. Especially, I think, like, some people are like, oh, is, like, Sauron supposed to be Hitler, you know, because it's, like, maybe around World War II. It's like, no, no, that's not, like, what Tolkien was trying to do. But there are, like, these three Christ types that may be intentionally or unintentionally, but that you're generally considered to be um, Gandalf because he's the returning, he returns and say he's, like, the returning, the resurrected savior. Um it's Aragorn because he's the returning king, especially a king who's built up and anticipated for a very long time by his people, and by returning he saves them. And then actually, I've mentioned this before, but the sort of surprise one is like Gollum as the sacrificial lamb. Um, so because um, this is like made very clear that like uh, Gollum is provided, right? There's a scene in Moria whenever Gandalf and Frodo are talking that like, hey, Gollum was meant to survive, you know, Bilbo saved him, and, like, Gollum was meant to be here. And therefore, there's this very clear picture that at the end of the story, um, Gollum, when he claims the ring, falls off. And this is because Frodo wanted to claim the ring for himself. And this is the idea that nobody could have destroyed the ring without, like, the only way that anybody would have ever, like, dropped the ring in is by accident. And the only person who maybe could have dropped it in by accident was Gollum, who had yearned for it so long after he gets it he just sort of like freaks out rather than maybe somebody else you know being more like covert about it so this is like this is intentional like Gollum was provided as like the sacrificial lamb to destroy the ring um that nobody else could and so those are generally like the three christ types that i think of like whenever um i read lord of the rings yeah i honestly um i know we talked about christian themes and uh other inspirations i almost i would like to to focus a little bit, if that's okay, on some of the other inspirations and sort of ideas of it. Because, um, like I said in the last episode, it was written in the tradition of like epic poetry. 
So, like, I don't know if y'all are familiar, um, but it was sort of his goal in setting out with not just Lord of the Rings, with the, the whole legendarium in general, uh, was to be a mythology for England. Um, and so I think he pulls in Christianity because, uh, surprisingly, other mythologies, because they've been written down by Christian monks, sort of had Christianizing uh, elements added into them. Um, but he he pulls in, he's writing it more, almost, almost, from a pagan-ish uh, sort of tradition. Now, obviously, he's very clearly writing it from a Catholic position uh, and a Christian perspective with the things you said, with the, the Christ-like characters. And uh, I think the most obvious one is uh, Eru being the one true god. Um, that's pretty, pretty on the nose. Um, yeah. Who's also like omnipotent and like yeah. guiding everything. Right. Yeah. So not just like a really powerful dude, but like an all powerful. Yeah. Dude. And then you have, um, especially not Sauron as Satan, but Melkor is a pretty obvious Satan archetype because he was the greatest of the definitely not angels trademarked guy. Um, who then falls pretty much explicitly because he wants to surpass Eru. Um, but it is also very much in a mythological sort of framework um, and in the tradition of the the Eddas and things like that. Um, we we talked a little bit off camera about how uh, uh, a lot of the dwarven names are ripped straight from this list in the poetic Edda. So you have things like Thorin and even Gandalf or elves in Norse mythology, or dwarves in Norse mythology, that Tolkien was just like, those sound like great names for dwarves. I'm going to rather about them going in Kevin the Dragon. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that it's, it's very fascinating to look at all the different uh, inspirations that he is writing from. Yeah, I think it's also interesting. This is something I read back when I read a biography of Tolkien, but that when Tolkien wrote, he was like, he was trying to make this like mythology, but there's also this essence that like Tolkien thinks that stories should be like true in a sense that like, yeah, hey, if if Tolkien would feel like, hey, if I were to write a story where all the characters were morally gray or something, that wouldn't be true to life because in life there really is evil and good. And, you know, there is really is a God behind everything yeah. um, who is controlling everything. So in the sense that it's like Tolkien isolates these themes and ideas from life that like are so fundamental or true that, that any story without them would be in some ways flawed and puts them into his story and then changes everything else that he thinks is like sort of the non-essential facts of our reality, yeah. um, such as its history and stuff like that. Yeah, which is pretty interesting. But yeah, Tolkien as philologist, I think, comes through a lot in his work as oh, yeah. like the name specifically of the elves and dwarves and all of those. That, and also, uh, alongside it being written as a mythology for England, there's also an argument to be made that he did, well, actually, it's not even an argument to be made, it's just true, that he did not create his languages for his story. He created his languages and then was like, huh, I wonder what the story of how these languages came about and the people that spoke them was, and then he wrote the Silverly and Lord of the Rings. So, like, yeah, he was not an author first and foremost. He was a linguist first and foremost, which is why uh, Sindarin and Quenya are still, like, 
the first and foremost held up conlangs of all time because they were the best. Yeah, it's really interesting. So I I read this that like Tolkien was grading a paper and it was on some old poem. And I, I read the poem one time. I forget what it is. But in the poem, it's like Arendelle the Mariner sails the stars or something. And this was like the very first idea he had for any Lord of the Rings related idea. Yeah. Um, Arendelle the Mariner is, of course, Elrond's father and yeah. like becomes a star and stuff. But it's really interesting as well that like whenever we think of Tolkien, we think of, you know, hobbits and stuff like that. But really, the Silmarillion is sort of his first brainchild. Oh, and yeah. The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings are more stories that are based off of his own, like, original fantasy world. Um, yeah. But yeah. It's funny, so, too. I was just going to say that when he wrote The Hobbit, he did not initially conceive it as part of the same world as the Silmarillion. It was only later that he connected them through writing The Lord of the Rings. Um. And I cannot remember which uh, YouTuber it was. It was probably Man of the Rings or something along those lines. That was talking about when in the discussion of is the Arkenstone a Silmaril? He's like, no, it's not a Silmaril. But it also is a Silmaril because it fills the same place in the story as the Silmarils did in the Silmarillion because he didn't conceive of this as part of that world yet. And so he basically was lifting ideas from the Silmarillion and putting them in The Hobbit. And so, yeah, the Elkinstone is not a, um, it's not a Silmaril, but it is a Silmaril. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, and so it's not until later that he connects them. This side tangent. Yeah, I actually, I think I read that it was during, when he was writing Lord of the Rings, actually, that he connected them. That yes. he starts out writing a sequel to The Hobbit, you know, and it starts out like very much like The Hobbit did where somebody's going on an adventure. But what was really interesting is that it was whenever he was writing the Black Riders and they seemed very dark, right? Like, and, and this is not yeah. like The Hobbit. The Hobbit is very lighthearted. And it was while writing the Black Riders that he was like, oh, this is like the evil Lord's Ring and these are his servants. Yeah. And this is like what connected those two worlds okay, of his. Yeah. Um, that made it a very much darker and more mature storyline than The Hobbit was. So like, yeah, The Hobbit actually like in general is just not connected to the same universe at yeah. least not at the time of its conception. You know, he did a little editing later on yeah. that of the world itself. Um, a, but yeah. There's a great meme about The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. It's like, The Hobbit to Lord of the Rings pipeline is insane when you think about it. It would be like if E.B. Wright, 35 years after he'd written Stuart Little, wrote a book about how Stuart Little's nephew went and killed Satan. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> it's like but, the different, like it's a children's book, and then it's an epic fantasy novel that's the sequel, and yet they're both really good and really fit together. I think what's really interesting too is that, like, The Hobbit also has like a lot of these like themes and ideas. Like, for example, the Bjornings, like that doesn't really fit anywhere in like Tolkien's like mythology, right? There's just sort of like these men who can magically transfer into bears and yeah. stuff. Well, and there's Hobbits. also these ideas. Hobbits don't fit into his older mythology. Right. They they're like an offshoot of men is the best explanation we get for them. But like, yeah, it, it's this real interesting um, connection where there's almost more things in the Lord of the Rings than in the Silmarillion, which I think makes the world seem way more exotic and interesting. Because if you think about it, it's like, okay, in the Silmarillion, you read about elves and dwarves and orcs and stuff. And then in the, the Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, you read about Bjornings and Hobbits and Ents and things like that. What else is hiding in this world? 
Right. Like there's some really in some side, like the official history or something. And yeah. like, like the actual events and we're like, oh, wow, there's like so much more of this world than we ever thought was possible. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Sort of this idea. Yeah. It's always really cool. But yeah, it's, it's interesting that like, yeah, that he didn't tie these two stories together and sort of had envisioned them originally as two separate things. Yeah. And it's impressive that he could tie them together um, because I haven't written many books, but I have come up with multiple like universes in my head because I had an overactive and still have an overactive imagination. But, um, and like you try to connect them in your head because it's just like, I like connecting stories and it's really hard. It's really hard to get these diverse themed stories to fit together in a convincing way. And yet somehow he does it, which is almost more impressive than the fact that he just wrote these stories independently. Like, like, It'd be one thing if he'd written this this one unified tale over time. It's another thing that he wrote these two completely differentiated stories and then figured out a way to tie them all together in a way where it seemed like it was planned from the beginning. Yeah, I think, though, it's always the best explanation of why people don't like the Silmarillion, right? They're like, oh, I love Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, but I didn't, like, it's just a very different kind of book, right? It's, it's not the history book. <laughs> yeah. Which I love because I have a history degree, but I can understand why other people wouldn't want to read hey, it. The Silmarillion is still my favorite book by Tolkien, so. Yeah, probably. <laughs> so something I know we've touched on before, but have we didn't uh, talk on this yet, is like the different things in his life that influenced uh, like things that came out in the books. Um, things like, you know, his marriage to Edith, um experience in world war one which um like varies on opinions on how much that actually really was written into the books um but any comments on any of that stuff you guys i'm going to make else? one very specific connection from his life to the books um that i have read about in various places and i find pretty convincing is that treebeard is based on lewis um <laughs> Uh, just kind of being this, like, very thoughtful, very, uh, pensive, kind of wise old figure, uh, that's a little bit goofy. Um, and yeah, Treebeard is C.S. Lewis. Okay, I have to go off of that, because if you guys have ever read the Space Trilogy by C.S. Lewis, yes, the main character that... is a philologist, just like Tolkien, just like and Tolkien, Tolkien writes the introduction... And he's like, yeah, this is a character isn't supposed to be me. And you're like, this is totally supposed totally to be totally you, bro. Like, no, uh, so, man. fun fact about that, this is total tangent, but uh, Lewis and Tolkien made a bet where Lewis was supposed to write a space travel story and T Tolkien was supposed to write a time travel story. And uh, very characteristically of each of them, Lewis wrote three books and Tolkien did not even finish his first one. <laughs> We would, like, wrote part of the story and never finished it. And it is also, it is also tied to, the, like, with a guy from Numenor that, like, time-traveled. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I have to, like, go on this tangent really quick. Sorry. But this is really interesting because, like, if you look at Tolkien's life, like, he overly obsessed about perfecting his works oh, before absolutely. ever publishing them. Oh, yeah. Um, Which is I think it's really interesting. <laughs> Right? Like, there's so few books by him. But I will say that, like, it's really interesting. And, like, contrasting that with, like, okay, there's just been so many sequels lately, like, in our pop oh, popular yeah. media. And the whole incentive behind it is, like, right, like, 
hey, it's popular. It will sell, make money. We get a sequel out there, right? And so, like, um, I don't, like, want to be, like, too critical, but, like, a lot of these writers, like, writing okay stories, but they're nothing, like, fancy or, like, they don't really, like, have the same investment of, like, this guy who's, like, you know, like, if Tolkien had written, like, a sequel to Lord of the Rings late in life, like, it would have been hugely successful, right? Like, already he's making money. He and tried. he did try. But then, like, he was like, oh, this isn't working. Like, right? Like, I'm not, I'm not going to complete this, right? Like, it just, like, the willingness to, like, hey, I don't really, this story's yeah. not going to be good, or I don't really want to tell this story is, like, something that just seems totally lacking in our popular, like, movies and shows. Well, um, it's, yeah. if I can go off this tangent of a tangent of a tangent, um, it wasn't even that he didn't think the story was working. He just, he thought it was too dark. Mm-hmm. He, um, which nowadays, like, oh, an ultra-dark sequel to The Lord of the Rings, like, everybody would have loved that. Uh, but he had the foresight to be like, no, this is too dark. I don't want to tell this story because it's, like, it's set after Aragorn's death or something. And mm-hmm. it's, like, all of these kids are, like, playing orc and there's culture Sauron. And it's just, like, he got too depressed looking at how quickly things fell apart. Um yeah, no, he tried to write a sequel, and then after, I think it was 40 pages, he was just like, nope, nope, I'm not doing this, this is not good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, really quick to tie, jump back to the, like, things from Tolkien's real life, I think it's it's really important to say that, that clearly, like, nobody can create anything without, it, like, being influenced from oh, their yeah. life. But Tolkien, like, also, he did, like he said, we didn't write analogies and stuff, and he never wanted people to, like, look at his life and be like, Ah, uh, like this character did this thing, um, and there was like recently like a Tolkien movie, and it was like, oh, you know, like he wrote like the the smog from his like World War One experience and stuff. Um, I believe he spent most of World War One in like a sick bay because he like got really sick whenever he went to the front. Yeah. Um, but like it just like, yeah, it's not, it's not directly taken from his life. Though I do think like his experience of like World Frodo's like um coming back and still like carrying the wounds is. Maybe not even his experience, but other friends' experience yeah. from World War One as well. Um, and that's important to remember that, like, he didn't grow up isolated, right? Like, he was taking a sense of the time as well. Um, yeah. yeah. Not analogies, but pulling them for descriptions, which sounds a little like analogies, but it's not. <laughs> it's not allegorical of, like, you can't say, like, a lot of people have said, like, oh, the orcs in Isengard is, like, an, an allegory for, like, the mechanization of war in World War One. It's like, okay, maybe, probably not, but he does use his experiences in the war to write a very accurate portrayal of Frodo and Sam basically struggling with PTSD as they're getting up to the um the realm. I will say the one place where it's pretty hard to argue that he wasn't writing a direct allegory is better than Luthien, considering he put those names on his and his wife's gravestone. Uh, <laughs> So I think that one's a pretty clear, like, that was pretty clearly him basically writing himself and his wife into the story, which I think it's hilarious because, again, Baron basically is just there along for the ride, and so I think it's really cool that he basically wrote his wife as the uh, ultimate super-powered elf girl. Yeah, I I guess, like, I'd still say there's something, like, if me and my wife, like, write, like, Romeo and Juliet on our tombstones, like, we didn't write that story, but we were like captured by it. And I feel like, and maybe in some sense, that's maybe closer. Yeah, that'd be really cheesy and dumb. But I was just saying that, like, <laughs> we kill in a sense, each like, other. Yeah. <laughs> Say, I hate but, that place so much. Yeah, it's pretty dumb. But like, yeah, I think there's a like stories, 
like what is the role of a story right and like it's not like necessarily even analogy it's like uh um capturing the essence of something yeah. right um and maybe that's maybe more of like right <laughs> but like that like he and his wife identified with Baron and Luthien enough that they were just direct analogies to their yeah, like yeah, personalities yeah. or characters yeah. and if you look at like Luthien or like oh this must be exactly what his wife Edith was like you're probably not going that's yeah. not what he was no, trying to do true. right so but I think yeah I do think that those story that story in particular was deeply more, influenced yeah yes. more so than most deeply influenced especially with the you know she converted to catholicism for him Luffy mm-hmm. gives up her fate as an elf to be with baron um it's <laughs> they're one of the few people in the in the that get a happy ending <laughs> yeah <laughs> so i i think that yeah it, it was it is maybe not a author insert but closer than anything else <laughs> Thanks for visiting the White City. Before you leave, please subscribe to our podcast and check us out at thewhitecitypodcast.com. Consider supporting my movement on Facebook, keeping the rings of power pure.